Thanks for tuning in to the Glossy Beauty Podcast. I'm your host for today, Jill Manoff, and this week we're shaking things up. Priya Rao, Glossy's executive editor and host of the podcast, is currently on maternity leave. So in the meantime, the podcast will be hosted by our senior beauty and wellness reporters, Emma Sandler and Liz Flora. So today we're tackling a year in review, breaking down the biggest beauty and wellness stories of 2021. This includes the growth in social shopping, the hair care market, NFTs, beauty shop and shops such as Ulta, Beauty at Target, and a recent wave of acquisitions. So let's go ahead and get started. Let's talk social shop. First of all, hi, Liz. Hi, thanks for having me here. So glad you're here. Emma, what's up? Hey. Excited to dig in. You guys have been writing about this all year, uh, schooled me on all that's going down in beauty. So let's do a rundown on what's happening. Let's talk social shopping first, uh, which Liz, I know you've covered to death. um, And I'm just like waiting for this to take off. I'm not shopping on Instagram just yet. Is anyone? So I'm pretty sure I covered social shopping last year in this episode, but so much has happened since then. We've seen all the platforms really ramp up their social shopping capabilities, Instagram, TikTok, Pinterest, Snapchat, even WhatsApp have all added more social shopping capabilities. I know others are emerging. Like, would you say the super greats of the world, the newness of the world? Uh, this came up a lot in our recent beauty summit where brand executives were saying, you know, this is really working for us. There are communities of beauty, I would say like beauty fans, beauty shoppers, um, beauty nuts that are on these platforms. And that's where they're doing their shopping on platforms as opposed to uh, the usual suspects of Instagram and TikTok. Right, exactly. So we've definitely seen the rise of video shopping overall. And that's definitely happened on places like TikTok and Pinterest and Instagram, where they've been investing in shoppable live streams, shoppable reels. TikTok ramped up its live stream shopping this year. Pinterest launched live stream shopping in November. Twitter also launched it that same month. You see everything on Instagram with all these brands doing lives. But there's also this wave of beauty-focused social shopping apps. So super great, newness, flip, etc. have all been onboarding more and more major beauty brands such as Too Faced or MAC Cosmetics. And they're hosting both shoppable live streams and doing TikTok style shoppable short videos. So we're definitely seeing brands really invest in these short videos and live streams. So is that kind of where things are going? It started off with this kind of like to know it model. It's evolved. It's evolved. Are, Are we still kind of doing those affiliate links? Is that happening in video? Like talk, tell me about the evolution you saw this year. Right. We've definitely seen influencers emerge more as retailers. So obviously influencers have always been enlisted to sell things in a certain way. It used to be more old school where they would just wear something on their photo and then the brands would hope that people would find their way to buy it. But now we're seeing brands really invest in finding ways to get influencers to link directly to commerce and connect the influencer posts specifically to the purchases. So we're definitely seeing the market become a lot more data driven. And in May, Instagram 
actually made it easier for influencers to tag brands for sponsored posts. And then in December, we saw that Instagram added a new affiliate program because it was likely seeing all the success of platforms like Like to Know It and Amazon's affiliate program where influencers can directly link now to the product listings to purchase. We also saw the launch of Gen Z-focused affiliate platform MC, which is kind of like a younger version of Like to Know It. So there's definitely a lot of investment in this affiliate space. And in addition to these outside platforms, now the social platforms are seeing the importance of this. And as they launch e-commerce, they're bringing all of these kind of linking shopping connections directly onto the social platforms. Great. Well, to, to wrap things up, kind of where do we go from here? Is that, First of all, is this all Gen Z? Is this a wider audience than we would expect? And gosh, is one platform going to reign supreme in terms of becoming the Alibaba Tmall? Or, or this is where it's going to happen? Or it's going to be more kind of PC in the US? Where do you see it going? Well, everyone's competing at the same time. You have, like we said, all of these major social platforms launching shopping. So people that are going on Instagram to check on what influencers are doing or what their friends are posting or people that are just going on TikTok to scroll will be given shopping links and inspiration for shopping. And then on the flip side, you have all of these very shopping focused apps that have a lot of incentives and points built in that are really attracting a more dedicated user base that is interested specifically in going on there to buy products. When we've talked to brands, we've seen that conversion is happening at a higher rate on these more shopping focused apps because people are getting the points and they're going there because they want to shop. But at the same time, those apps don't have anywhere near the reach of an Instagram or a TikTok. So you'll probably see more of a bifurcated approach where brands might focus more on awareness on the bigger platforms and a niche audience on these shopping focused ones, but they're definitely going to be investing more in the coming year. Exciting. Well, that makes great sense. Emma, let's talk hair care. What a year it was for hair, which I love. I mean, and talking curly hair, talking big hair. <laughs> yes, please. Um, what did you see in the hair care space? Well, as a quick note, I've I've become very attached to Cindy Crawford's 1990s style hair. So that's what I've been showing to every hairdresser I've been going to over the last two months. So this that's my personal secret. hair care updates for oh, you. But your hair is looking great. I'm going to copy your style. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. So hair care has had a big year. Some of this was an acceleration of trends that already began in 2020, but the hair care for 2021 had a couple big developments, one of which was curly hair care. A lot of brands like Function of Beauty and even heritage brands like Kerastase launched their curly hair collections. But we also saw a lot of opportunity from a business side, such as Miel Organics, which raised at least $100 million in outside funding, which is pretty significant. That's a really big number, which shows how bullish traditional businesses, or in this case, investors are in the hair care sector, particularly when it comes to curly hair care. I think another thing that was accelerated coming off of 2020 was the hair growth and hair loss subcategory. Brands like Head & Shoulders launched more recently their own 
hair loss, hair growth collection, but brands like Vegamore and Nutrafol saw a continued underlying growth based off of that category. And these are brands that were already playing in that space for many years. Then uh, lastly, Walmart, uh, as well as a few other companies have started to invest more in hair care. Um, We had New, which is a P&G incubated brand with Walmart, stands for Next of Us, and that is more for the multicultural Gen Zer. And then Walmart also had a exclusive collection with Garnier that was on clean scalp and hair care. For sure. Well, what are the forces that are driving this? Is it about kind of embracing individuality? Is it about self-care? People are paying more attention to, I guess, yeah, how they're taking care of themselves or what's happening? So the hair growth and hair loss one is fairly straightforward. While the pandemic did not necessarily, at least that we are certain of, contribute to additional hair loss. It certainly did elevate the conversation into the mainstream because people were so stressed out and they felt like they were experiencing additional hair loss. That one's pretty straightforward. With respect to brands like New or the curly hair care segment, that is influenced a lot by Gen Z. New, for example, is trying to reach the multicultural Gen Z audience. They're the most ethnically diverse than the other generation. So that also relates back to a appreciation and a better recognition of textured hair and the desire for Black, Indigenous, people of color to want to wear their hair naturally. Um, That's where a lot of the curly hair care comes from. A, A lot of it is... Black women, Black entrepreneurs who are saying, listen, this is a brand that is for me and it's for the people in my community and we don't have enough of these products and brands out there. For sure. It is 2021, 2022. Um, (laughs) It's wild that some of these things haven't existed just yet. Um, Would you say we're heading toward, we hear a lot about like the skinification of hair. Obviously, skincare is booming. There's some there are a million different products. Like moving into 2022, do you just think the the market, the hair care market will continue to, to expand in terms of the products available and the brands going there? Absolutely. I think we will see interesting new ingredients come into play in hair care. A lot of things around rice water fermented beauty, for example. We saw big trends on TikTok. Um, Briogeo recently launched around rice water So I think that's one way that we'll see an interesting growth in the hair care section. I think we'll continue to see more of these exclusive retail brands, whether it's Walmart or perhaps even other retailers. And I think we will see more luxury brands like a Kerastase getting into textured and curly hair care. That I would not be surprised to see. Well, we will wait and see. That sounds like a plan to me. <laughs> I shot you the the hers ad with with J Lo <laughs> talking about her hair loss, and I mean, okay, <laughs> or lack thereof, really. <laughs> I, I questioned the legitimacy of that, but um, maybe J Lo's losing her hair as well. So lucky for her, there are all these amazing new products. <laughs> um, but 
JLo, she's just like us. Liz, let's talk NFTs. Um, I would say, I mean, in terms of things that were new to the world, to the industry in the last year, it's kind of the year of the NFT. This was something that we had never talked about before. Maybe it was late in 2020, but I don't know. This was It was the year it took off. Uh, how are beauty brands taking to this trend, getting in on it, making it work for them? Yeah, so beauty came a little bit after fashion to the NFT game. We definitely saw fashion brands get in there first, but beauty got in on it pretty quickly after. So starting in the spring, we began seeing some of the independent beauty brands and beauty artists launching NFTs. I think the first one that reached out to me was Gracie J, a famous nail artist who worked on the TV show Claws, and she released an NFT with her nail art designs. And if you bought the NFT, then you got a physical set of the press on nails as well. So that's one of the themes we're seeing is this combination of an NFT artwork and a physical component. And then later on by July, you had all these major brands getting on board. NARS, Elf Beauty, Givenchy Beauty were some of the biggest that were the first to get in on it. And these were mainly promotions to drive hype. They weren't selling large quantities of NFTs or selling for large amounts. They were either doing giveaways or doing limited edition sales, basically just to drive some buzz and get attention. Yeah, totally. Well, do you think I like what you're saying about the physical meets digital? Do you think that for the beauty Space. Is this just kind of a layover until it, it's all digital, the physical component won't be here? Or is that physical component essential for it to make sense in the beauty world? Well, one thing that's interesting is we're seeing some inklings of how this could actually become part of a brand's business model. So NYX did digital makeup looks for a crypto fashion week event after New York Fashion Week. And this shows that makeup is also part of this drive for looks for digital avatars. We see so many fashion brands getting in on this and talking about the potential for creating fashion in the metaverse that people will actually buy to put on their avatars and live in this brave new virtual world. It is yet to be seen whether the metaverse will actually take off to that level. You're already seeing people buying real estate in the metaverse. Um, people are buying fashion in the metaverse. You do hear brands talking about the possibility of creating avatar makeup looks, right? And then selling them on more of a mass scale to people who are interested in buying them for their virtual avatars. So that might mean gamers or according to the NFT evangelist, that's going to be all of us in the metaverse someday. We're all going to be wanting to dress our virtual selves in outfits that are just as stylish as our physical selves. So yeah, it is yet to be seen, but uh, that's definitely what some people are really betting on. Oh my gosh, it'll be the new us. <laughs> we will be metaverse, I don't know, literate. <laughs> and anyway, I, I have yet to hit hit a Roblox to hit a, a, a metaverse. Other than the Digiday metaverse, there is one, ladies and gents. Anyway, it's hot. Um, so tell me, do you think, I would say, is a beauty brand earning significant revenue right now? Is this a new revenue stream for anyone just yet? Or is that still to come? 
It's definitely not a main revenue stream for anyone by any means. Right now, it's all about the buzz. And it's one of these kind of futuristic things where some people are saying the metaverse is going to be as big as the internet itself, right? It's just going to be this thing that overtakes all of us. And if that is the case, yeah, it'll be super important for any brand to get in on it. So they're just going to have to wait and see if this actually takes off in the way that um, Mark Zuckerberg wants it to. We're going to take a quick break. Stay with us. Well, we have to talk about all of the, I would say, the changing dynamics of beauty retail. There's some new intermingling that we would never have seen or expected prior to 2021. Um, We mentioned at the start of the episode, Ulta Beauty at Target, Sephora at Kohl's, obviously something um, major. Some of those brands that are carried at Sephora would never think to team with Kohl's. Um, What can you guys tell me about what's happening here? Is it just about luxury breaking down their walls, expanding their horizons, showing up where the consumer is. How would you describe it? Uh, Emma, you want to take that one? Yes, I would definitely describe it as showing up where the consumer is. There for a past several years has been an interesting cross-pollination between brands and retailers or marketplaces. And I think this is just a real way to encompass and almost in a way describe the situation in beauty. It does not matter now if you buy your products from Sephora, if you buy it from your CVS or other pharmacy, if you buy it from the supermarket or if you buy it from Neiman Marcus, no one cares. It's so long as you can get it at a convenient time, it's readily available and is perhaps I guess also at an appropriate price point for you as a consumer. So I think that's a lot of what's going on here. We also know that some retailers like a Target have a really interesting consumer who love identifying with the Target brand. They love the idea of shopping at Target. And so it makes a lot of sense for another retailer like Ulta Beauty to want to harness that. And there's an interesting sense of brand identity that can also be shared here. At my local Kohl's, a town away from me, I noticed when I was at that shopping mall last time that Kohl's had the Sephora name on their their billboard right outside where it says Kohl's and Sephora. And I thought that was really noteworthy. Absolutely. Do you guys think that we're going to see this more? I know that there have been some, there's been some overlap or um, I guess collabs, some partnerships between uh, the clean beauty retailers of the world and these Sephoras and Altas. Um, is it just, I mean, what does it mean for these retailers that they're all coming together and canoodling? How would you describe, yeah, the direction here? Where do we go from here? Where do we go from here? I mean, if you asked me which retailers I think are going to partner up, I couldn't tell you that. I do think it's a really good point you bring up about indie and clean beauty retailers, because we had seen some of that in the past play out in retailers like Anolta Beauty. Um, So we might see a rehashed version of that. I would be interested in seeing a more traditional department store try and beef up their beauty department by partnering with a 
detox market with a credo beauty with a violet gray, for example. So I think there is opportunity there Um, in terms of what it means. I, I just think that it means that there's a lot more consumer customer data to go around. I think it means that people are more comfortable shopping wherever they are and however they want. Um, I don't think there's as much discrimination now from a consumer standpoint in terms of where they shop. Yeah, it's interesting. I remember, you know, always speaking to brands where if you ask them, uh, what made you decide to, I don't know, sell at Neiman Marcus? Why do these sales channels make sense? And a common uh, response is, well, brand alignment. If I'm around, you know, these prestigious brands, it, it raises my my reputation. It it gives me the ex- it almost ex- um, provides reason for my price point. I'm luxury. Obviously, the meaning of luxury is changing. Um, what's ha- how would you describe what's happening there in the beauty world? It does something signify you're a luxury brand right now. You know, I, as you were speaking about brand alignment, why brands go into certain retailers, it reminded me of the Andy Warhol quote, I love Coca-Cola. I could drink a Coca-Cola. You can drink a Coca-Cola. Liz Taylor can drink a Coca-Cola. It's the idea in a way that there are both well-off or high household income individuals who shop at a Neiman Marcus, but there are also people who go in because they want to buy the $20 Dior lipstick and that to them is their luxury. I don't think you have to be a certain type of person to shop at a certain type of retailer. I think brands recognize that. Ultimately, if you have $200, Dr. Sturm is not going to say no to your money, no matter who you are. That's just good business principle. So I think that's really what we're seeing here is this kind of breakdown almost of of class divides, so long as you have the money, which in and of itself a class divide, but that's not quite what we're trying to talk about here. Personally, I have to say that I am really excited by all of the accessible brands that have made their way into Sephora, especially as Sephora is doing these more accessible partnerships. And it just makes me think back to when I was in my 20s and I was in college and I would go on Sephora's website and I couldn't afford anything. It was all so luxury, such a high price point. And now you have all these super fun Gen Z brands coming in and I think these retailers are realizing with Gen Z that they need these affordable price points, but they still want the fun branding, which I wish they would have realized for the millennials when we were in their 20s. I don't think they realized the price issue with millennials because we are a much poorer generation and so is Gen Z. And I think brands and retailers have finally realized this. We do not have the spending power of the boomers and it's not changing anytime soon. So the brands have finally woken up to that, but they're still making things that are super fun and cute. So thank you, Sephora and Gen Z for getting in on this trend. Hallelujah. Yeah. And bravo to Gen Z for like, I don't know, calling things out, valuing price points. Like we all saw the backlash that, I mean, this is a totally different uh, level, but that Chanel got with the advent calendar and this $800 or something um, for nothing. Um, You're going to get called out. So yes, um, be reasonable, be smart. Totally. The Glossy Beauty podcast has turned into an economics podcast very quickly. (laughs) 
Gen Z does not worship at the altar of luxury. If you are going to be charging a super high price point, you have to be able to justify it to them for sure. Right on. Love it. Well, let's move on to acquisitions. I mean, so much movement in this space. Emma, what would you say were the the standout um, deals of the year? So at the beginning of the year, I think it was noteworthy that Estee Lauder Companies has upped their stake in Dacium. I, I don't think we can forget about that, although they already did have a minority ownership. Um, but this past few weeks has really shown the appetite that strategic buyers have for indie brands. In the case of L'Occitane, they acquired a majority stake of Sol de Janeiro. P&G is starting to craft a prestige category with pharmacy and whey. L'Oreal then also acquired Youth to the People. And based off of a Women's Wear Daily that I read, Youth to the People is estimated to earn right now around $50 million in annual sales, which is really small in terms of an acquisition by a multi-billion dollar conglomerate like L'Oreal. So to me, that indicates that they're much more comfortable than in prior years with getting that really small brand and helping build them up to being a 100 million in annual sales to a $1 billion in annual sales brand that they're used to. Are the beauty acquisitions happening um, maybe in one sector more so than another? Like, are you, what are you seeing in maybe like skincare? What's happening, Liz? Yeah, it's so interesting with all those acquisitions that Emma mentioned, Youth to the People, Pharmacy, Decium, Paula's Choice. There's so much investment in skincare startups these days. And if you contrast that with what's been happening in makeup, you saw that conglomerates were actually offloading their makeup brands. Estee Lauder closed down Becca Cosmetics, Shiseido offloaded Bare Minerals, Buxom, and Laura Mercier. And in the meantime, you have all of these buzzy skincare startups being eyed by these big conglomerates. And it's definitely following this trend that we already saw with Drunk Elephant. And we're just seeing more and more of that. So the conglomerates are really betting on skincare. Yes. Emma, I know you have a story in the works. I don't want to, I don't know, get in front of it too much, but uh, about taking a majority stake versus a full on acquisition. Um, Why is that catching on, I would say? Yeah, I think there's a couple different issues at play. I think some of it, and this sort of relates back to the L'Oreal acquisition of youth to the people, even though that's a full 100% purchase. Um, It's the idea of being a bit more comfortable with things that they're not used to doing, Uh, whether that is buying a large brand like a KKW or Kylie, which were both valued at 1.2 billion and being able to acquire majority stake for a smaller, more digestible amount of money. But then I think there's also issues that we've seen like Becca or Clarisonic, where there are companies, conglomerates that purchase a brand and then realize at some point that it's just not really working out. So I think majority stake allows a company to have decisive ownership that is with 51% acquisition but at the same time, allow that brand to ingratiate itself better into the portfolio with a little bit more time. Dacium is a perfect example of that. Right on. Well, my gosh, we covered a lot of territory here. Let's end it on a super fun, 
note, lighter, airier. <laughs> Liz, I mean, all your coverage this year uh, did a story that either you wrote or within the industry stand out to you as like as a favorite, something that really uh, spoke to the changing times or yeah, that's just exciting to you. So my favorite story that I chose for this year actually goes all the way back to January of 2021, which was a story I wrote called The End of Escapist Instagram, which was basically about what we've all been seeing over the past two years, especially during the pandemic, with the fact that Instagram has emerged as a news channel. It's not just for escapist pictures anymore. It's not just about your latte and your brunch and your vacation. People are using it to share their opinions and thoughts on a lot of heavy topics. And you've seen Instagram kind of lean into this with allowing more sharing in stories and links in stories. And all this data shows that people are using this as a news outlet now. It's kind of becoming the new Facebook. We saw brands really struggling with this over the past two years because if you're a brand, you want to create this kind of escapist, consumerist fantasy, but life has been very grim for all of us. So it's been hard to do that. And we saw all this news about all of these social media managers for brands being burnt out over the past two years with all of the news events that have been happening. And it's it's a different platform now. And we definitely see with TikTok this kind of dark humor emerging. So there's definitely a place for humor. So would you say that TikTok is the new Instagram? And is that more escapist? Or really, can any platform, I guess, take the take that title now that really, if you're an influencer, you're expected to weigh in on on every topic, every worldly topic. Um, it, how would you describe what's happening on TikTok and escapism in general on platforms? It's so interesting to see the contrast between TikTok and Instagram because TikTok is definitely not this escapist fantasy. It has a lot of humor and fun on it and jokes, but it's not about pretending to have some life that you don't have. I think the pandemic and all of the news over the past two years have shown that we don't have these great lives and we can't just lie about it on Instagram anymore filters are getting a lot of flack as well. So on TikTok, it's really helped drive this trend of authenticity and being real. And obviously Gen Z is a major force behind that. And that's made its way over to Instagram as well. It's affecting everything. It's affecting what people post about. It's affecting their aesthetics. It's affecting the way brands approach their content and what gains traction. So we're definitely going to see that continued evolution over the next year. Right on the fall of the filter. Interesting. All the brands that are making, you know, revenue on filters. Sorry, folks. Anyway, (laughs) it's, it's interesting. We'll see where that goes. Emma, how about you? What was your fave? My favorite story was from August of this year with the launch of the Rose Inc. beauty brand in partnership with Amaris. 
I have followed Rosie Huntington Whitley's career for some time, including the launch of Rose Inc., the editorial platform. So for me, it was personally exciting to not only see the launch of her dedicated makeup and skincare brand, but also be able to make contact and interview her for it. It was a story I also tried to approach differently and make a little bit more of a traditional profile that you might see in a magazine or long form digital story. So I connected with La Bouche Rouge, which she had previously collaborated on a Rose Inc. product with them. So I got some insight in what it was like to be a brand working with her. I interviewed the Amorous executives to also understand their relationship with Rose Inc. So it was a real highlight for me personally. Yes, I remember the the tone was kind of like, well, this isn't just, I don't know, a cheap, you know, like a, a money grab for her, her for her it was kind of like it's about time she's doing this we were all chomping at the bit for her to do something like this and she wanted to do it right tell me about amaris like i love i love what they're doing it's it's very uh unique i we're we're writing about them time and time again what, what's going on with them well how are they yeah standing out amaris is an interesting company our audience might better know them as the owner of biosense which has the hero ingredient of squalane uh, behind them. And Amaris, when we're talking about acquisitions, they've had quite a year and will continue to acquire quite a few brands. John Mello, their CEO, is part of our Glossy 50 as well for this year. So they're a company that is seeking to be the L'Oreal of clean beauty. And so far, their strategy is a combination of owned brands, but also collaboration brands with Jonathan Van Ness, for example, on a hair care brand. Um, They're working with Victor Costa on Costa Brazil, which they acquired earlier this year. And then of course, Rose Inc. So there's a lot that they're doing, a lot of irons in the fire. Right on. Well, I love it. Hey, you guys, I love that you mentioned Glossy 50. We hit on a lot of the trends that we covered in that feature. On that note, be sure to check out our feature uh, that's live now on Glossy. And you guys, here's to an amazing year in beauty and all the coverage you've done. Uh, it's been it's been fun. It's been real, Jill. See you in 2022.